A few years ago, I got into buying and selling stuff on eBay. How many of you have done that? You have, yeah? Okay. Uh, eBay is great. It's like, it's like the, the world's biggest garage sale online, and you can find good stuff, and you can unload your junk, and it's fantastic, right? Um, and I never actually made any real money on eBay. Uh, I'm told that you can, um, but I never have because... Uh, I did I did have a few things that I managed to buy on clearance at Walmart that I actually made money on, and I sold for more than I paid, um, which was awesome. But the majority of the stuff that I have ever sold on eBay was my stuff to start with, for which I had paid more money than I was able to get, right? But at a very minimum, you're able to reclaim some of the uh, surplus value that's there, right? That Uh, at least you can get some of your money back now that you no longer need this item, right? Uh, And I have, um, despite my best efforts to the contrary, managed to accumulate over the years a whole bunch of stuff uh, that that I really don't need, right? Uh, When you're a single man, it's pretty easy. You know, when you want to move, you just get the bed sheet and you fold it out, you know, you pile everything you own in it and tie up the corners and off you go, right? And you get married and you think, it's okay, we'll just get the queen size sheet and get two of them and we'll be in good shape, right? (laughs) Um, No. Uh, When I moved here, we had to take two trips with a 26-foot truck um, to get all of our accumulated junk right? Because you not just not only have your junk, but your wife's junk and your kid's junk, right? And, um, and eBay is a way to get rid of some of it, right? Um, you know, I, I have a theory that, that uh, when Karen and I go to glory, uh, when the, uh, it, whatever the kids don't want, they just have, I'll just have them set the house on fire, and just burn it all down, you know? Because that's what's going to happen to it anyway. But there are some things right? Everything that you own at some point is destined for fire, right? Uh, At least according to Peter. So maybe we'll just start that process early. Uh, But there are some things that you have that you, even though they don't have a high level of intrinsic value, are things that nevertheless you'd never sell, right? I have a Bible that was my great-grandfather's, and I would never sell it. It's an old, beat-up, King James, Schofield Bible, uh, printed in the 1920s, and I'd never sell it. Why? Because it was my great-grandfather. And he was a great believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, you can't buy from me the pocket watch that Karen gave me as a wedding gift on the day we got married. You can't buy my wedding ring. Just a hunk of gold. Somebody extracted from the ground, right? made into a little ring to go around my finger, but it's not for sale. You can't buy any of the family pictures at our house. You can't buy any of the mugs that Karen and I have collected from various places we have been uh, around the country, right? Every place we go, we buy a pair of mugs. We drink a lot of coffee at our house. And we have mugs from New Mexico and mugs from Galena and mugs from the Grand Canyon and mugs from everywhere. Eventually, I'm going to have to get a a shelf for just mugs, places we have been. Why are they not for sale? They're just mugs because they are 
emblematic of a memory that I have of a treasured time with my bride. And so they're not for sale. Uh, And obviously, it goes without saying, although I'll say it anyway, that none of the people in my house or that I know and love are for sale, right? They're not for sale. Uh, Why? Because as Song of Solomon says, if you were to give all of the wealth of your house for love, it would be utterly scorned. And these are people, and you love them. They're not for sale, right? Not now, not ever. And I bring all this up because it helps us understand a principle that today's passage uh, reinforces, that we show what we love and how much relative value uh, we place on it. And we do this all the time. We do this with people. We do this with things. And anything that we would sell for a price, no matter how high, is something we value relatively little. Anything that is not for sale at any price is something we value a lot. My house is for sale. If anybody wants it, they can have it, okay? For the right dollar amount, we can come to an agreement, right? My truck, as much as I enjoy it, is for sale. There's very, very few things that I own that are not for sale. Now, I might not have a sign on it, but you can have almost anything I own for the right price, right? Because they're just things. But there are some things and some, and certainly people who are not for sale, right? Why? Because the value is greater than any price that you can come up with, right? And we show what value we attach to people and things by whether or not they are for sale. Now, in this passage that we're going to look at today, we're going to meet two people that Jesus loved and that were counted among his closest friends. And one is going to give him honor and worship and freely sacrifice to him the best thing that she has because she loves him more than she loves everything else. And one is going to sell him cheap. And and the reason he will do so is that while he loves Jesus, he loves money more. So if you've got your Bible... Go to Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or people may riot. And while he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man named of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard, and she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. 
and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest who betrayed Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, it's Wednesday afternoon. In the Jewish calendar, the evening of each day, uh, what we would consider the day, uh, ended at sunset and a new day started. So it's Wednesday afternoon and there are still, by Jewish reckoning, two days left until the Passover because Wednesday night will be the beginning of Thursday and Thursday night will be the beginning of Friday. Now, I know that's confusing, okay, because we use the Roman reckoning, uh, which is also present in the other Gospels, uh, of day starts at dawn, ends at, suns- you know, ends at sunset, right? Uh, a day is, is midnight to midnight, right? Uh, and that's the Roman calendar. But in the Jewish calendar, there's still two days because it's Wednesday afternoon, and we've got Wednesday night is Thursday, Thursday night is Friday, and Thursday night starts the, uh, the Passover feast. And then after that, there's a seven-day feast uh, called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and so the total thing lasts about eight days. Uh, and the, the two together are called the Feast of the Passover because they're closely connected, and this is one of the biggest high holy days that there is in Judaism because the Passover is the New Year celebration. This is the first day of the Jewish calendar. And and it's and try to imagine in order to put it kind of in terms that we understand, try to imagine Thanksgiving, uh New Year's and Fourth of July all wrapped into one because it's celebration of independence of the new year and of uh, redemption from Egypt out of slavery. And so you get this idea of, hey, we're getting set free, we're getting a new start, and we're thankful to God. And you roll all those together and party for eight days. You know, Thanksgiving, you know, uh, I always have to get new pants after Thanksgiving, right? Um, this is this is kind of the idea, only it's not a one-day shot. It's eight days of uh, of total feasting. Passover is one day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days afterward, and it's a huge party. And there are probably about a million people who are living in and around Jerusalem. And among this crowd, Jesus is very popular. And so while the chief priests are wanting to arrest Jesus, they've got to come up with a way to do so without causing a riot. And so the, uh, the text literally reads, they're looking for a way to arrest him by deceit. Or as the NIV has it, uh, some sly way to arrest Jesus. Jesus. 
to do it without attracting a lot of attention and certainly to do it without causing a riot because the reason they want to get rid of Jesus is that he is challenging their authority. And if there's a riot, then the Romans might well take away their authority anyway, which is not the point. We want to maintain our authority and get rid of Jesus. So we've got to come up with a sneaky way of getting rid of Jesus so we can keep our authority without having a riot. And um, so the plot is thickening. Things are getting a little more tightly wrapped. And while that's going on, Jesus is about two miles away outside uh, of Jerusalem to the east in a town called Bethany. Bethany is one of uh, Jesus' favorite places to be. It's where Mary and her sister Martha and her brother Lazarus lived. Uh, In fact, uh, if you read John's account as kind of a supplement to this, you'll see that they are all there at this feast. In fact, one of them is going to play a prominent role in what's about to happen. And Jesus is at dinner. And what you did uh, in the in the ancient world, you didn't have tables like we have where they're, you know, about 36 inches off the ground and you have chairs and you pull up to them and all that, or 30 inches. Um, and you, you sit up at a chair and you get your plate in front of you and all that. No, what you did was you had, uh, you had your plate on a table that was about yay high. And you had pillows all the way around the table and you would lean on your left elbow because your left hand was considered unclean. Uh, for various reasons, and uh, you would uh, eat then with your right hand while you leaned on your left arm. And so, you know, the text records that Jesus is reclining at the table, which he would be. Uh, when you read descriptions of um, of the Last Supper, you, you hear about um, John, the disciple, leaning back on Jesus and being very close to him. Well, the way he's able to do that is that they're all kind of stretched out with their feet sticking out, the unclean part of you, toward the outside of the circle going around the table. And Jesus is eating, and uh, a woman comes in. And this is one of two incidents of anointing, by the way, I should tell you, uh, that are recorded in the Scriptures. One happens in Galilee and happens with a sinful woman at the house of Simon the Pharisee, okay? Now, both of the guys who are hosting the party are named Simon, but they are different people, okay? Don't get them confused. Um, and uh, that's in Luke chapter 7, if you want to read that, okay? Simon the Pharisee. But this one takes place in Bethany during the last week of Jesus' life. And this is the one that's recorded by Matthew and John and Mark. Okay? Um, and it, and it, anyway, this woman whom, whom John tells us is Mary, Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, comes in, and she's got this alabaster vial, this little stone jar. And it is full of perfume, and she... Um, the way that these were made, they would seal the perfume down inside the jar, and to get it out, you had to break the neck off of this little vial. And she breaks it off, and she pours all of the contents on Jesus. <clears throat> this, this 
perfume that she uh, used on Jesus was made of what Mark describes here as pure nard. Now, nard is an oil that comes from a rare plant uh, root in, uh, that's native to India. Now, you know, the world in our world has gotten a lot smaller. We have modern transportation and roads and boats and airplanes and a lot of security, actually, along the roads and so forth. But in the ancient world, uh, it was a lot further to India than it is today because there would be robbers along the roads, uh, such roads as there were. Uh, to get this stuff was a was an arduous, costly process. And so it was worth a tremendous amount of money. And the jar that she has, or the, the little vial of this stuff that she has, holds about a pint. Now, last time I bought perfume, they did not sell it by the pint. Okay? If you, gentlemen, just a word to the wise, if you find perfume that is sold by the pint, that is not the kind your wife will enjoy. <laughs> okay? But uh, normally it's sold by the ounce in little bitty bottles, you know, and it's like, how is it $150 for an ounce of that stuff, you know? And it's just this little bitty, you know, and then you open the package and you're like, seriously? Um, right? And it's the same kind of deal uh, in, in Jesus' day, only imagine that the cost is not relatively expensive, but still reasonably affordable, maybe for your anniversary or Christmas, okay? This is ridiculously expensive. This is perfume that's worth uh, about a year's wages. Now, I have bought perfume before, and, and sometimes it was, from my perspective, very expensive. But I have never spent, let's say, thirty or $40,000 on perfume. And that's what this woman has done. And she hasn't metered it out, you know, with a little sprayer, a little at a time. You can make it last. She's taken every bit of it and poured it on Jesus. The most valuable thing that she has. And this is probably, I think, an act of worship that is done, I believe, in response to the fact that she now knows who Jesus is. Because although Mark doesn't record it, uh, John, John does. You remember, John, this is, John records this in chapter 12. Chapter 11 of John is the raising of Lazarus, her brother. And I believe she does this out of thankfulness and out of recognition that the person who is sitting, who is laying down on, at this table is not simply a man from Galilee who's a descendant of David that he is, in fact, the Son of God, the Messiah. And she is offering him the best thing that she has. The most valuable thing that she has to offer, she gives to Jesus in complete sacrifice of all of it. She spends the equivalent of a year's wages to make Jesus smell good for a couple days. 
And it's an extravagant act. And right away there are people who start complaining. John points out that one of the people is Judas who starts complaining. But, but Mark mentions that there are just some people at the table who start complaining. And some of them are Jesus' disciples. And they start in and they start criticizing and rebuking Mary for what she's done. You know, by pouring it all out at once, she's wasted in their eyes something of great value. Um, and they start rebuking her for it. It says, Mark says, they rebuked her harshly. Like, what are you thinking, you stupid woman? That kind of rebuke. And you could have given that, you should have sold that perfume and given it to feed the poor. I mean, if you want to do something good, I mean, come on. What's wrong with you? And Jesus steps in. And Jesus, one of the things I love about him is that in a society in which a woman's value was calculated in terms of livestock, as, by the way, they still are in large parts of the Middle East, Jesus is very, very gentle and kind to every woman that he encounters in the Gospels. Great example to us, guys, um, how he deals with ladies when he encounters them. He says, leave her alone. Look at the text. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. According to Jesus, this woman, Mary of Bethany, knows that Jesus' time is about up. And she knows that death is coming soon for the Messiah. And you can and you should help the poor, right? If you are wealthy, and all of us in America, comparatively speaking, are wealthy, you can and you should help the poor. Jesus says, you'll always have poor people in your society, but you won't always have me. In other words, I'm going to be taken away soon. And she is trying to honor me while she has the opportunity. You know, whenever you have a funeral, um, one of the great testimonies at a funeral is if people do not have a lot of regrets connected to the person who has died that they have not done what they could to uh, make sure that the person understood how they felt, right? And if people have a choice, they will take always honor and love and encouragement and praise and friendship while they are alive rather than tears when they are dead, right? Because honor and love while we are alive does us some good now. Tears when we are dead affects us not at all, right? And Jesus is commending her for bringing him honor while he is there to receive it. 
And he says, you can help the poor anytime you want. Um, and their concern anyway wasn't so much the money. And it wasn't so much the poor. It was the fact that in their eyes, using something that valuable on Jesus was a waste. See, Jesus was their friend, and he was their rabbi and teacher and master, and they followed him. But a year's wages? I don't know. It's a little too extravagant, don't you think? But Jesus was recognized by Mary as having ultimate value. And so anything that she had was secondary in comparison. Because the man who could raise my brother from the dead after he has been dead for three days and stinks is the Son of God. And so I will offer him the best that I have. But the disciples, even though they were also there, didn't see it. And so they were more concerned about what in their eyes was a waste than about seeing Jesus exalted. Mary says, I'm not going to hold back even a drop because you are worthy of everything that I have to give you. But not everybody made the same choice, did they? Look at verse 10. After this happens, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to Jesus to be to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. Judas witnesses this extravagant act of worship and decides that he's going to sell Jesus into the hands of the chief priest for whatever they will give. And Mark doesn't record it here, but the price that he sells Jesus for is 30 denarii, one-tenth of the value of Mary's perfume. 30 pieces of silver was an amount equal to about what you would pay for a slave. See the different valuation? My Lord and my God, slave. And so, whereas Mary considered Jesus worthy of the best that she had to offer, the one who had been with him as one of his disciples, who had seen him teach, who had been with him all through all of the miracles, through all of the teaching, through everything that has happened, says, you know what? This thing's about to come unwound. I'm going to do what I can to make a little money on this deal. 30 pieces of silver. Jesus isn't worth a year's wages. He's worth about six weeks' pay. we'll take what we can get. 
And so he starts looking for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, you know what's interesting? Nobody suspects Judas as the betrayer. In fact, we'll see next week, all the disciples at dinner are asking Jesus, is it me? Surely it's not me. And Judas knows it's him. And I think a lot of times when we, we picture the 12 disciples and we, you know, we, we, we think that there's like 11 normal-looking guys and one dude that is definitely evil-looking, right? He's like snidely whiplash off old Dudley Do-Right cartoons, you know, got the curly mustache, the slicked-back hair, kind of a hunchback, you know, and he's, you know, like this, <laughs> you know. That is not the picture that we should have of Judas, He is a normal-looking, normal-acting member of the disciples. He is someone whom Jesus personally selected out of all of the people who were following him in the crowds to be one of the twelve. And that's why the betrayal is so heinous. Because it's one of his closest friends who sticks the knife. And not for a great amount of money. But for a paycheck worth about six weeks pay. I don't know what's more dishonoring. The fact that that Judas sells him or sells him so cheap. after he has just witnessed the most extravagant act of worship of Jesus prior to the the resurrection that is recorded in the Gospels. He says, huh, 300 denarii, that's way too much. How about 30? We'll go with that. And you know what? Here's the reality of it. Judas is not so completely unlike us, at least in some ways. Uh, We might not sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, but we do sell our allegiance to him all the time, don't we? And we often do so for much less. We betray the one who bought us with his blood every time that we sin against him. Every time that we gossip against our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and even those outside of the body of Christ. Every time that we lash out in anger instead of responding in grace, every time that we don't guard the purity of our eyes and our minds, every time that we are greedy rather than giving, every time that we would rather be served than serve others, every time that we look like Judas instead of Mary because we have betrayed the Lord with our sin. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God. Right? But a lot of times, we betray the one who bought us, and we rebel against him. Even though we belong to Jesus, we say, you know what? I'd rather have the pleasures of sin for a season than the righteousness of God 
I would rather make this little compromise here or there because after all, no one will know. Is that true? It's not that no one will know. It's that no one you consider important will know. And yet, God knows, and you know. And we betray Jesus all the time, but for much less than 30 pieces of silver, right? We sell the Son of God at at a discount on a layaway plan by little acts of sin day by day by day. And we place a value on Jesus all the time. But there's a flip side to that too, isn't there? There really is. And I don't want to focus too much on, on the, bad, the bad and the evil that we do. Because here's the reality of it. Our sinfulness is a reality. Amen? Does anybody doubt that they're a sinner? Has anybody ever not woke up, up in the morning after some sin, big or little, felt the conviction of the Spirit and looked in the mirror and not seen Judas staring back. Anybody ever not done that? I've done that more times than I can count. Realize that I have betrayed the Lord who bought me with His blood. And our sinfulness is a reality, but you know what is a bigger, greater, more wonderful reality? The fact that the blood of Jesus covers all of my sin, all of my betrayals, all of my rebellion against God, all of it. And as Paul says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I can look at myself in the mirror and I can say, like Paul said, I am chief of sinners, right? And so can you, because we are the worst sinner that we know, right? We might be able to identify some other people that we don't know, you know, the Adolf Hitlers and Joseph Stalins and Mao Zedongs and whatever of the world, right? And say, well, they are worse sinners than me. But the ones that we know look at us in the mirror every day. And we are the worst sinner that we know because we know more of our own hearts than we know of other people. And even for me, chief of sinners, the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for my sin and yours is greater than all of our sin. Right? And so when we come to the point where once again we realize that I have sold Jesus cheap with this sin or that one or these or those, then I can, I have a choice to make. I can either continue to be Judas or I can repent and receive the grace that is greater than all my sin. I can receive the forgiveness of the God who knew all of the evil I was going to do and who was willing to sacrifice his son to cover. I can repent of my sin. 
And, you know, I don't know about you, um, but sometimes I get caught this way. When I, I you know, I, I get convicted, I know I need to repent, right? And this is what I then think in my brain. Well, I don't really want to repent and come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness right now, because now I feel really horrible. And so what I'll do is I'll do some other things that I think are righteous. You know, I haven't read my Bible in a while. I'll do that. I, I really need to, you know, walk a Girl Scout across the street or something, right? Um, just, I don't know if anyone else is this dumb, okay? But I am this dumb that I think that somehow I ought to do enough good stuff to somehow work my way back to the place where I was before I sinned so that then when I come to repent, to repent I don't feel the need for repentance as bad. Right? You know what Jesus calls that? Pride. You know what else he calls it? Sin. He says to Isaiah, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And yet he invites us to come and to, be, to repent and to be forgiven. Even though we have betrayed the one who bought us. Even though we have rebelled against God. Even though if there is any justice in the world, he would condemn every one of us to hell. Even recognizing all of that. He says, I love you. I've sent my son for you. If you will come and repent. You can have forgiveness free. And the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. And walk in holiness of life. And do the things that make for holiness. Not out of a desire to impress God with your righteousness. But out of joy. That you have forgiveness and new life. Right? So that you can then read your Bible, not because, well, I really need to do this because I feel really bad about my sin. But because you receive through the Word of God the upbuilding life that comes as the Holy Spirit's words are imparted to your heart. So that you can pray out of joy in a relationship with God. Not because you feel guilty. So that you can serve one another in the church and those outside it because you can't help serving the one who has served so much on your behalf. And it's the kind of wonderful joy that overflows into worship. The abundance of thankfulness that comes because we are forgiven, not because we are trying to work and receive it. And we can sacrifice the best that we have then and have it received as the act of worship that Jesus wants us to offer, not as a, an atonement, because the atonement has already been made. So, if you are carrying the weight of sin today, and I would suspect as I look around the room, can't read your faces. I don't know your hearts, but I know mine. And I know that sometimes I carry around all of this baggage of sin. Things that I've done that I shouldn't have done. Things that I've not done that I should have done. 
and you just kind of tote this stuff around with you. Sometimes for years afterward, you can lay that suitcase down at the feet of Jesus and receive his grace and forgiveness and say, Father, I know I don't deserve it. I don't, I can't earn it. I can't do enough good stuff to deserve your forgiveness. But I'm leaving this here with you, all of my baggage and junk, so that I might walk in forgiveness and in life and enjoy worship you. Let's pray.